Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. Well, here we are, Lanny. Yeah. So today, look, we've got a really serious subject that we're going to talk about. Not that yep. they all aren't, but this one is especially important to us trying to understand. So we've got a great guest. We've got uh, Dr. Brazier, who is the Ducks Unlimited Senior Waterfowl Scientist. And he's, there he is. He's joining us from, from Memphis. and uh, From the HQ. From the headquarters, yeah, that's, that's right. right. So via via the technology that via we are not a wire very good somewhere at. around here, that's right. <laughs> can you hear us, Doctor Brazier? But we're good at talking about ducks, you know. So hey, I I can hear you. I can hear you. Yeah, this is like hybrid connection with some uh, maybe a mix of old school and, and new school technology. But I think we got something workable here. That's a pretty good describer for us. Period. <laughs> a lot of old school trying to get some new school in there. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Brazier, thank you for being here with us. Look, we're hearing about this, uh, and I may pronounce something wrong, and if I do, Dudley will correct me. But yeah, like maybe his name. Uh, well, I believe it's Brasher. Is it not? Uh, no, no, no. He started the podcast off telling us how to properly pronounce his name. Yeah, his name is Dr. Brazier. Okay. So um, this <laughs> avian uh, flu that, that we're hearing about and seeing so much on social media uh, you know, as as duck hunters, as supporters of Ducks Unlimited, it, w- can you help help us understand what we need to know? Yeah, I'll be happy to. Let me just first say I appreciate the opportunity to join y'all. Uh, I wish that I could be there in person for a number of reasons. I, I grew up in Calhoun County. I have a good friend who grew up hunting Tibby Creek just down the road. Man, in the stomping ground. <laughs> went to school at Mississippi State, so I'm very familiar with West Point, Mississippi, Mossy Oak, and and all that y'all stand for, and so I wish I could be there with y'all. We'll have to make that happen at some point here in the future, Um, but yeah, I'm I'm happy to kind of share with you what I can. I've had a number of occasions to talk about this subject, and and I always start by saying I'm not a wildlife disease expert. Uh, I'm certainly not a virologist or anything of that nature. Um, what I've, what I'm able to share is, uh, is a result of some of the conversations that I've had through with, with, with those people, wildlife disease experts across the U S several different uh, agencies. And, um, so yeah, I, you know, Ducks Unlimited has, has our, I guess, role in this, if you will, is one of sort of communication and outreach when it comes to 
the entities responsible for managing the, 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 I guess, the response to this outbreak. You're looking at your state agencies and the federal agencies and, and all various federal agencies. So those folks are the ones that we always kind of turn to, and they're the ones that have the expertise on this. But we want to help them communicate about this issue. And, and so it's something that has, that, I don't. I guess I don't want to get into too much of the history. I'll let y'all ask some questions, and if we go back in, in the history, then we can. But this is something. The current strain of this avian uh, influenza virus first showed up in the U.S. in January of this year. I think it was South Carolina. A duck tested positive for American widgeon, if I'm remembering correctly. And disease experts at the time knew. I pretty pretty much knew what was going to happen. They didn't know exactly the timing, didn't know exactly the scale and how it would, would happen. But what we're seeing now and have seen over the past few weeks here, the, I guess better part of November and now into December, is, is what folks knew would happen, is that this was going to spread through the wild waterfowl population. And uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's what we're seeing. Um, I mean, I could go on for about 10, 15 minutes just describing what I know about the virus if you, if you wanted me to, but I think it'd be better. If y'all have certain questions, um, maybe let's go at it like that. Any kind of, so I can answer them and kind of hit on the high point. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm going to look at Lanny first. Mm-hmm. What, Lanny, what you want to start with? Well, you know, just a little bit of research I've done on this. This thing, I guess, has always been around, but what's different about now than what's going on in the in the I guess the current set of affairs affairs what's what what is uh, <clears throat> what's going on in the current set of affairs that hadn't gone on historically? Yeah, so influenza viruses. I'll, I'll try to I'll try to offer my understanding of that is. Influenza viruses have been present in waterfowl populations for a long, long time. The current type, subtype of virus that we're dealing with is one y'all probably seen it referred to as highly pathogenic avian influenza, HPAI or HIPAS, any of those kind of names. That's a little different. If you go back probably more than, I think, 20, 30 years ago, the influenza viruses that we would see in wild waterfowl populations were almost always of the low pathogenic type. And that low pathogenic versus high pathogenic refers to the, to the degree to which it can cause severe disease and mortality in commercial chickens and in poultry. And that's, that's kind of been, that's for the longest time, that's where we saw the highly pathogenic version was just in commercial poultry operations. And they would do some, some very, uh, some, tightly controlled depopulation efforts and they would kind of control that high pass uh, virus. Somewhere along the way, we started to see that highly pathogenic avian influenza subtype show up in wild waterfowl populations. And that's a concern because when you have a free ranging wild waterfowl population, you can't depopulate it. You can't like kill all the animals so that you in effect are also getting rid of that that highly pathogenic virus and that's that was a strategy taken and continues to be a strategy taken in commercial operations so what we have now that uh, you're right that the influenza viruses have always as far as we can remember and have have known have been present in waterfowl populations now we have reached the point where we're starting to see these highly pathogenic subtypes show up with with greater regularity in wild waterfowl populations. And that has thus far been primarily a concern because of the risk of 
spreading that the, of that that virus getting into our commercial poultry operations, which can have devastating economic and food supply issues. Up until now, this current strain, we have not even seen very much mortality from even the high pass subtypes in wild waterfowl. It's only been about three or four, maybe not even that many different outbreaks of high path avian influenza in wild waterfowl populations. But in those previous instances, didn't result in any kind of notable mortality or, or, or much, much of any noticeable illness either. But this one is different. And that's about why it's different, you know, in terms of the virus itself. I don't know. That's kind of beyond my expertise. But the disease experts did begin to see, even in the spring, with the mortality this virus was causing in wild waterfowl, they began to think, you know, this one feels and looks a little different. And I think that's continuing to to kind of, uh, be the case as we get into the fall and winter here. So, Dr. Brazier, I, I see a lot of videos on social media, and it appears from what I'm seeing that it uh, is affecting more snow geese than anything else. But is it affecting all of the all of the bird species, or is, or is one more effective than the others? Yeah, so there is an, an important part of this state-federal response is a, a massive rollout of surveillance efforts. That surveillance in wild waterfowl populations, that surveillance effort is really important because it helps. It helps. It, it's, waterfowl can serve as an early warning signal of where and how quickly the, this thing is spreading across the landscape. And if you are a commercial poultry operator, that becomes really important information for you. You know, they want to know where this thing is. Just and, and of course, Mississippi and, and West Point. Uh, yeah, that 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 we we know about commercial poultry in, in that area due to some of the, the businesses operate in that in that region. And I think I looked recently and over at this as of a couple of weeks ago, over 50 million commercial poultry had been affected by this virus alone thus far this year. And, and by affected, I mean basically killed either from from the disease itself or through depopulation efforts. So there's all these massive uh, surveillance efforts going on. And what those surveillance efforts are doing is looking for the presence of the live virus in sampled birds, those sampled wild birds. A lot of those sampled birds are hunter-harvested waterfowl. There are some efforts to capture um, well, maybe that happened in some of the banding operations they were doing some, some sampling. And then, uh, so hunter harvested birds, as well as reports of sick or dead birds are also tested. And when you, you can, there's data, databases online where you can go there, uh, where you can go and look at all the different species of, of birds that are affected. And the virus is present, the live virus is present in virtually every species of waterfowl that we have in North America right now. You see it in ducks, you see it in geese, you see it in, in any other kind of species of waterfowl. It's also present in a lot of other bird species. Now, it does appear, and I was at a goose conference, Arctic Goose Conference last week, and we had some conversations about this. It does appear that right now, snow geese, light geese, I should say, snow and raucous geese, appear to be the most susceptible. Now, whether that's something to do with the, the ecology, well, I shouldn't say ecology, but some, the, the physiology of that bird or something specific about the virus that makes it more uh, more dangerous to those species, or it's the fact that those species, snow geese, Ross's geese, concentrate in such large numbers 
and then thus is leading to the, the higher probability of severe illness and disease. I think some of that uh, severe illness and mortality, some of that remains to be worked out. So that's, that's a long answer, uh, but that's just kind of emblematic of the type of nuance that comes with trying to fully understand the, the, any kind of virus for that matter, but then also kind of what we are seeing. So um, short answer is yes. The other thing I'll say, it also appears to be having the greatest effect on young birds. That's if it is affecting adult birds. When I say effect, I'm kind of talking about causing illness and, and death. Um, it appears to be most prevalent in the young birds, young of the year, and that's not unexpected because those birds are the ones with the most naive immune system. They have not yet been exposed to a lot of these viruses at lower concentrations and thus been allowed to develop antibodies and, and so forth. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's ubiquitous across the, the bird world right now, and it's not exclusive to waterfowl. So, Dudley, I'm going to let you – but let me ask one question. It's just it's on top of my mind. So, so Dr. Brazier, what about if a guy kills a – some some birds do we is there any reason to not eat them if the bird appears otherwise healthy when you harvest it then there will be very little risk or the risk of you becoming ill let's say even if that bird had avian influenza uh, the risk of you developing an illness from that is very low and i guess let me unpack that a little bit the, the risk of, of us, of this virus affecting us adversely is, is pretty low to begin with um, because, well, for a number of reasons. But one of, the, one of the things is that we know from some research out of, the, out of Georgia that the viral load, how much virus is present in different parts of the bird, is lowest, well, I shouldn't say lowest, it's relatively low in the muscle tissue. It's relatively low in the, in the skin. The highest viral loads are in the organs and the brain, as we understand it right now. Those typically aren't the types of parts of the bird that people will eat. Some people do eat the organs and, and so forth. But, um, but the viral loads in the part, parts that we eat mostly are going to be pretty low. Plus, there just doesn't seem to be much evidence that even when we contract the virus, we take in the virus, it, that, it, it, uh, that it would cause any type of severe illness. There have been some cases of humans getting the virus and falling ill as a result of this. I can think of two cases in particular, but those were of individuals that had very close contact with a high number of, of suspected or known AI-infected birds. So the risk is very low to humans if you want to exercise additional precaution, and this is what the USDA recommends to cook your your uh, cook wild waterfowl to 165 degrees internal temperature. I, of course, made the point when speaking with USDA representative that, you know, when you cook wild game to 165 degrees, you basically made it inedible. <laughs> she, she understands. She understands, but she just said, look, that's, that's the guidance. So, yeah. Well, that, that logic that I described for humans and the evidence that I described for humans and their low susceptibility to this virus also applies to dogs. Now, to clarify, or to uh, the the virus the, and the disease that it causes has been detected in wild canids. Uh, you can go online and find there's some databases managed by USDA 
uh, USDA APHIS that will tell you, will show you all the different animals that this virus has been detected in. Uh, it has been detected in harbor seals. It's been detected in, I think, a dolphin. It's been detected in raccoons and skunks and fox, red fox, I believe. So other species outside of birds can contract the disease, can, can fall ill as a result of the disease, and in some cases cause death. Um, but those type of infections likely resulted from those animals scavenging and eating the entire body of an animal that had died from avian influenza. And those are the type of situations where the, the viral load is going to be highest and they would be consuming all of the, the innards and they'll be probably consuming the brain, probably eating it all. So getting all of that viral load and that viral load is important just as, as yeah, it, it is important. So the, the overall risk is low. For, for dogs, for domestic dogs, I'm not aware of a documented case of it occurring in wild dogs yet. But nevertheless, if it can, if wild canids can get it, if you're a dog owner, it makes sense to, to be cautious. Don't let your dog chew on on carcasses of dead birds. Uh, don't let your dog chew on the carcasses of, of even the birds that you shot that were healthy and that uh, that that you processed because there's a good chance based on the surveillance efforts that we're seeing that the avian influenza virus may be present uh, in, the, in, that, in that bird. Uh, so don't let your dog chew on dead carcasses. You know, I would, at, at this point, I would suggest refrain from letting your dog retrieve dead birds or sick birds that you are uh, uncertain of because there could be other diseases out there that we don't know about. So just as a general rule of thumb, probably not a good idea to let your dog uh, retrieve birds that are dead of some unknown cause. So, but yeah, that's those two of the big questions. Like, what's the risk to me as a human or to me as my as my dog? And the short answer is, it's a very low overall risk. Yeah. So you uh, you've answered some questions that some of our listeners have already asked. Uh, like Jesse Cole was saying, how is this affecting our dogs? Oh. Uh, C.J. Moore and and Ben Kenny were uh, they asked if it can transfer to like turkeys and birds and things, which uh, I'm sure that's an obvious yes, but what can hunters, gamekeepers, backyard enthusiasts do uh, to help? Um, I'm thinking of things like, uh, I mean, you mentioned the thing about not handling the dead birds, not eating the organ meat, but what about, uh, you know, like backyard feeders, uh, any anything like that, anything we can do? Turkeys, that's a question that we get occasionally. So let me talk about that a little bit. It is It is widely believed and this comes from the wildlife disease expert, widely believe that if a wild turkey contracts avian flu, that the, especially this high path version, it's likely going to die. And the reason for that is it relates to and, and why waterfowl differ from other birds. The waterfowl generally, for most of these viruses, are pretty, have pretty strong immunity. And the reason for that has to do with the kind of mode of transmission when a bird gets infected with this it sheds the virus through its feces and also through its, its uh, bodily fluids through the uh, uh, mucus from its, from its mouth or whatever but it's mainly that through the feces and so what do we know about waterfowl they like water and what do we also know they congregate in large numbers 
And so if that virus gets in the water and it can persist for a long period of time in the water, then you have, and then you've got other uninfected birds that are foraging, that are drinking in the water. So it is a perfect recipe for, for rapid and very efficient transmission from an infected bird to, to others in the flock. And so waterfowl have evolved in the presence of this very efficient uh, mode of transmission. And that's why over centuries or millennia, they have developed a greater immunity to these, to these viruses just kind of in, in general, as I understand it. The same can't be said for turkeys or a lot of other, uh, certainly land birds. Shorebirds have some immunity to it, as, as I understand it, kind of the way waterfowl do, because they also appear in those sort of wetland environments. But wild turkey, it's, it, their immune systems are completely sort of um, um, uneducated about this virus. But it's also going to be much more difficult for a wild turkey foraging in uplands or bottomland hardwoods that, let's say, maybe are not flooded to actually take in the virus. You know, they, they just don't feed in water in large concentrations the way we see waterfowl do. But if, yes, if a wild turkey gets it, it's probably going to die in pretty, pretty short order. Um, the same is going to be true for other passerines and raptors, and that's going to just depend on how much of the viral load they take in. There have been some reports of raptors falling ill and even dying. That's not unexpected because they're, they're scavenging these dead and dying birds. Um, let's see. And then also backyard feeders. I hesitate to offer any guidance on that because I would turn to my state wildlife agency for that one because I think there are some different recommendations from one state to the next. And, and I have not been up to speed on that. What I, what I can say, what I can say is that the greatest threat of this virus to things that are meaningful to us are backyard flocks of birds, like if you have backyard chickens, backyard turkeys, uh, guinea fowl, uh, even backyard ducks, domesticated ducks, they'd probably be a little bit more susceptible than some of the wild waterfowl. I don't know that for certain, but that's kind of my, my guess on that. Um, and then also commercial poultry facilities. If you have any interaction with those things, backyard flocks of birds or commercial facilities, or if anyone in your family has interaction with those commercial facilities, those are the type of situations in which you need to be uh, extra vigilant. And that means try not to, you know, basically separate your waterfowl hunting gear from those places. You don't want to go riding out in through a, a flooded rice field that's got 200 dead or six snow geese and then go home and ride that four-wheeler up into your chicken coop. There's a really good chance that you would be transferring some virus into that chicken chicken pen or that 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 facility wherever you would have them. I shouldn't say facility; that's kind of more commercial. But your backyard, you know, the chicken chicken pen. Uh, don't wear the same boots that you wear hunting uh, into your your chicken coop or things of that nature. If you're in those situations, you want to separate that gear from those backyard plots and commercial facilities as much as possible. That's what we can do. There's very little that we as gamekeepers, as waterfowl hunters can do to prevent wild waterfowl from giving it one to the other as we currently understand it. Now, uh, we're, there's a lot of research being done right now, a lot of studies going on that are going to help us learn a lot more about this as we go forward. The other thing we don't know about is whether this is something that we're going to have to deal with on a more regular basis. And if so, 
then we start to ask the question, well, is there a way for us to manage habitat differently such that we mitigate the risk to wild waterfowl uh, and, and maybe even commercial poultry operations, you know, we kind of look at the interaction, intersection of all those types of things. So, yep, that's that's what, I, what I'd say in that regard. I was just uh, wondering, you know, I hear about, <clears throat> you know, I guess outbreaks in domesticated uh, chicken flocks, and I hear these, you know, the the wildlife, you know, having it too. Did this thing develop um, on its own, or was it? Uh, did it come from the wild population and is getting into the domesticated population, or vice versa? Was it something that occurred because of, um, you know, I guess uh, bird farming, and then got out into the wild? Now the wildlife is being a vector for it to get other places. Well, I. That's a little outside my area of expertise. I should say it's a lot outside my area of expertise. But what I can do is refer to a publication that came out earlier this year that was kind of looking at the uh, basically the, the genealogy of, of these viruses. You know how there, there are a lot of parallels in understanding this avian flu virus and then understanding COVID and uh, the coronavirus and, and COVID that we all went through for whatever, two or three years. And you remember how folks would talk about the, the virus mutating in different strains, and they're able to kind of look at the, the, the genetic makeup of one viral strain versus the other and tell where they're related and all that. The same applies to these types of viruses. There was a paper came out earlier this year that, um, that kind of documented the history of, of avian influenza. And, and this is kind of what I said earlier, and is that prior to – I want to say it was the early 90s, there had been maybe one documented case of highly pathogenic avian influenza in wild bird populations. Most of the, well, all but one of those documented cases that, that we had, what we saw H highly path avian influenza um, prior to that were in commercial flocks. I don't know what changed. I don't know what happened that allowed the uh, allowed us to kind of be in the situation where we now find ourselves where we're with more frequency seeing the high pass virus show up in wild waterfowl populations. I don't want to point point the finger in either direction. I'm not I'm not up to speed on what all the data would suggest, but um, but I, I highly pathogenic avian influenza had been a concern in commercial poultry operations long before. It became as big of an issue in wild waterfowl populations. That's I think that's pretty well uh, agreed on. And uh, so yeah, at least based on my understanding from that paper earlier this year. So so yeah, that's I, I don't know what what happened. I don't know if the version that we're seeing in the wild right now is a natural mutation. Um, but I do know that will occur uh, among viruses. So um, yeah, hmm, great. I appreciate you answering that because I know that's a tough one. You know, <laughs> you got to. Yeah, that can yeah, that yeah. can get a little well, political. It is. Get a little it's political. A lot of people smart. Yeah, yeah, it requires people a lot smarter than me to really under to answer that question about which came first and where did it come from. But that's kind of my understanding of, of where we saw it and when we saw it. But that that doesn't infer kind of causation or jumping one direction or the other. You know, at least from my perspective. Sure. So. Uh, Dr. Brazier, I've got a question, and I'm I'm just not smart enough to know, so I'm I'm gonna go ahead. You you know, if this is a dumb question, just say it's a dumb question. But with with the cold weather that we're we're in in you know Arkansas and places freezing up, 
does the does the cold slow down the possible transmission or maybe even kill the virus? Uh, that's that's not a dumb question at all, and I would never accuse anyone of having a dumb question because if that was the case, I wouldn't have any questions at all. So, uh, so no, it that's a that's a great question, and it relates to something that I've heard other people ask. It's like, well, if we freeze after we freeze the meat, does it kill this virus? And then we not even have to worry about uh, any type of, of potential infection, however low the risk is. It's actually just the opposite, in that this virus can thrive in colder weather. And, and there's a couple of things that, and it, I should say thrive, it can persist better and longer in colder environments. Um, freezing will not kill the virus. Uh, freezing will probably actually make it persist longer. It will persist in the environment in, in suitable conditions, cold conditions for multiple months. And that's why, and given that this kind of fecal oral route of transmission where birds, sick birds are, are defecating in the water, and if that's cold water or frozen water, that virus can persist for multiple months. How long exactly? I don't really know. But the cold weather is not going to, to tamp it down. If anything, it would sort of accelerate the spread for, for a couple of reasons. One is, is, as I mentioned, the virus can persist longer in colder water, colder environments. And then also, just as we learned with, with COVID, individuals that have compromised immune systems that may have comorbidities or other kind of ailments or maybe physiologically stressed are going to be more vulnerable to serious illness. The same thing is going to apply with wild waterfowl in this case. And so when you think about the type of event that stress waterfowl, one near the top of that list is going to be abrupt and rapid uh, decreases in temperature and then migration, quote, forced migration as a result of that. And if you go back to Veterans Day weekend, that's what we saw. And I was talking to a state waterfowl biologist before that weekend, and he said, we're going to see pretty quick here what this virus is capable of doing because we've got a massive uh, winter storm that's dropping temperatures to, to significantly below average, and it's going to cause a massive migration from long distances and that's going to stress some of these birds. And then if, if they're going to thus be more susceptible to the virus, this is just kind of us talking, hypothesizing. And there was, I've seen nothing to suggest that that, uh, that, that wasn't true. You know, you can't necessarily say that it, it, it sped up because they were physiologically stressed, but it certainly wouldn't have helped them. That much would be certain. Um, so... Yeah, cold weather is not going to do anything to tamp this down. What could tamp this down is what we're seeing now uh, across the, the Mid-South. is a lot more water on the landscape. Basic Wildlife Disease 101 tells us that the worst situation for, for, uh, for a disease is having a lot of individuals in a small area. And when you have drought on the landscape, that's exactly what you get. And that was the that's the way things were a few, well, for the past few weeks. We're getting some rain now, and it's putting more water out there, and it's also diluting some of that viral load that's in those existing wetlands, and so that's a good thing, too. Spread the birds out, dilute the viral load. That's going to, uh, th- that'll help. Whether it helps to a measurable degree, don't really know. Yeah, that, boy, I can see 
Oh, yeah. See how that would help. Mac, have you you got a question? Mac? I know Mac Mac's got a question. I do. Uh, I mean, being gamekeepers, we all like setting out wood duck boxes. Do you have any suggestions on people that will be setting those out this spring? I I would not worry about – I would not worry about changing any of my and the nest maintenance practices at this time. Um, we don't uh, – this is kind of anecdotal based on what people are hearing, based on what people are seeing. Although folks are finding some dead ducks, um, we don't seem to be finding them at, as, in as large a numbers as, as we see snow geese. Now you can always say, well, that's because snow geese are big, big white animals in broad open fields. True. There is a detection bias there, but I've not heard anything to make me think that there's, that we're just not seeing all these dead ducks that are out there and we're just not seeing them. I haven't heard anyone tell me, say anything that to suggest that's the case. So I think the general thinking right now is that for whatever reason, whether it be physiologically or it be just the, the fact that they're not concentrating as densely as maybe the snow geese were, ducks aren't as susceptible from, a, from an illness and mortality standpoint. They still get the virus. It's still showing up. At the live virus is showing up in a lot of ducks that are being tested through these surveillance programs, but because we're not seeing a lot of illness and mortality, I wouldn't change uh, my 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 activities with regard to uh, managing, maintaining wood duck boxes or anything else of that nature. Um, it is possible, and it, and this just has to be true for for, for ducks to develop. The antibody, and there's the people out there starting to test, looking for antibodies in waterfowl, and that would tell them if they had been previously infected but survived. And there are instances of people finding that antibodies for this virus in waterfowl that appear healthy. So that's a good thing, and that basically means that there are some birds that that uh, that basically means that if they contract this virus, it's not necessarily a death sentence. It's going to depend on the viral load. It's going to depend on their immune system, et cetera. Um, and so, so yeah, it's, it's, we, we know that these birds can develop some immunity to it, some antibody protection to it. And, um, and so that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we are on that. So I would not let it, let it change my, um, change any of those, box maintenance or other habitat management activities at this point. Sure. So, so Dr. Brazier, we always say around here, Mother Nature is one tough mother. Yes, she is. And it's uh, it, sound, it sounds like this is another example of that. But as guys who love ducks, and, and, we, and we do, and our brand does, and we, we are just so thankful that you and Ducks Unlimited are out there learning about all this. Because, uh, you know, Lanny, I didn't know it was quite as complicated as – no. Is what he's explained. I've listened to some other things that he has said and what has come out, but um, you know, this is something everybody needs to pay attention to and be aware of for sure. Well, it's highly widespread, as it sounds like too. So definitely got to be aware of it. Yeah, well, and uh, you know, the yeah. I heard him mention about the poultry, the ch- I'm assuming it's chicken houses and yeah. stuff like that. You know, that's a that's I a- did, and I, it has to make me think because you know we're in a pretty a densely agricultural area to, here too, and then. A lot of the practices over the last few years have included, you know, using composted chicken manure uh, to, to fertilize fields yeah. and stuff. So, 
you know, we've, we've often had conversations, you know, you, you said the word Turkey or somebody said Turkey around here. So, you know, our mind goes to those kind of things. So is it, is it possible that maybe, you know, when some of these products, these chicken based products are being spread in these fields and maybe weren't composted properly, that could be a vector for spreading the disease, not only to turkeys, but I mean, with the water's edge, because a lot of these ag lands bump up to, to bottom grounds too. I don't really know on that one. I mean, it's, it's I don't know. I, I would imagine, well, I know that commercial poultry facilities have some pretty strict biosecurity uh, control measures in place right now. And if they detect avian influenza in their, in their facility, uh, it's my understanding that the, the protocol is for kind of rapid depopulation to get that under control as quick as possible. And so then they would also have precautions or have protocols for disposing of any of that compost in a way that would eliminate further spread. That would be my guess. I don't know that. Um, but I would, I wouldn't, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I would find it surprising, I guess, if, if um, if that type of activity was responsible for, for spread. Now, it's theoretically possible, but, man, those commercial poultry facilities that have that stuff locked down, and, and I, I cannot imagine they would be careless with that uh, with any of that manure that they know would have come from, if they knew it came from those from an infected facility. Sure, well, sure. I circle back. I don't back think anybody to, would do it on purpose. Yeah, yeah. And I, I circle back to thank goodness <clears throat> right. that, that Ducks Unlimited is out there leading this charge. And, yeah. And, and they've, they've got multiple biologists and scientists right. looking at this. I right? have a feeling this new strain is, is going to spawn some new studies. That, yeah. That, you know, some of these questions that we don't really have answers for, hopefully we will in the next year or two. Yeah, and I'm not trying to yeah. you know, throw any rocks at the chicken farmers. Yeah, just, no, you've always just trying to understand it. it. But, yeah, that, that came up several years ago. Uh, yeah, I know we talked ten, about it in yeah, relation in to turkeys. In the past. And, it, and quail. And quail, well, too, yeah, we, so. in relation to quail. Yeah. I mean, cause, you know. I would say that is a good thing to be aware of. Like, if you're a commercial, if you're a backyard, uh, if you have a backyard chicken flock, uh, poultry flock, and if, if you know, Heaven forbid you get, and it, it is happening in hundreds, if not thousands, of backyard flocks across the country. If your flock is becomes, you know, susceptible to this, gets infected, it, it will run through those flocks in pretty short order, and the the prognosis is not going to be good. But if that happens, then your point is a good one: is that you have to consider that the area of that chicken coop through the through the dropping is now, uh, you know is likely to have some residual virus in it. So even and ignoring any conversation about what uh, what type of biosecurity controls the, the poultry facilities have in place, it was wise for backyard producers to uh, yeah backyard producers to be aware poultry owners if they if they get it in their property, they will need to kind of take some measures to to, to clear some of that manure before they bring, before they kind of repopulate. So, no, that's a great point. Think about the mode of transmission and how that virus can be spread around uh, backyard flocks uh, accidentally, you know. Yeah, no doubt. And, hey, look, I love chickens. Y'all know that. <laughs> I would just point folks if they want more information about this. There's a lot of different websites out there. You can kind of get lost in them. Ducks Unlimited created a site where we have some frequently asked questions and then also some links to a series of external websites. There's also a number of episodes from the Ducks Unlimited podcast on that site. 
and that website where people can go and, and learn as much as they want to about the about the situation. www.ducks.org forward slash avian flu. And a lot of information there. The other thing that I would just say, uh, people may be wondering two things. What's the current status? Uh, and then is it likely to have an effect on wild waterfowl populations to a degree where we're going to see harvest restrictions, et cetera? Uh, on the first, on the first point, I've heard from a couple of people. These are localized issues or these are sort of localized stories, but on their properties, they're seeing a decrease in the number of sick or dead birds that they're encountering. It's been going for about three or four weeks on their property, but they are saying that it appears to them anecdotally that the the virus may be kind of, quote, burning its way through through the flock. And that's, that's kind of an expected thing to happen, but there's always a chance of a mutation and it, and it, it affecting adults more severely. But right now, it appears that it may be decreasing at some of these local areas, and hopefully that continues, and we see this further decrease as we, we get in farther into winter. Um, the other thing is that in terms of whether it'll have a population-level effect, I don't, I've not spoken with any waterfowl manager that is concerned about long-term persistence of waterfowl populations as a result of the virus. Uh, there have been, and, and the disease, there, there have been a few, there are a few species you can point to which took it pretty hard this summer, and there were some states that voluntarily rolled back uh, or volu- asked hunters to voluntarily refrain from shooting hens or young birds, common eiders in the northeastern U.S. is an example. Uh, there will probably be a few local stories like that. Uh, individual species or populations that we might have a slightly elevated concern about. But at present, it's always subject to change given new information. At present, we don't expect this to have long-term consequences to wild waterfowl populations. Nor nor have I heard anyone say that they that they are considering, and it's really too early anyway uh, to, to even talk about this, but I've not heard anyone uh, suggest anything about modifying harvest regulations as a result of this. And that'll, of course, happen through the flyway system. That If there is a need to discuss it, that'll happen there. Um, Ducks Unlimited doesn't have any role there in, in setting up harvest regulations, but those would be our state and federal partners that would be doing anything if, if it turned out to be required. Well, good. Well, we will link in our show notes to uh, the, the Ducks Unlimited backslash avian flu we'll have that linked in our show notes for guys so so yeah yeah we really appreciate you helping us understand this and uh but guys before we move on does anybody else have another question for him or i'm looking around i don't think so so look we'd like to have a little fun with you we've got a trivia question that mac's gonna ask and if you get the trivia question right one of our listeners wins a prize so i'm gonna turn it over to mac Oh, boy. All right, so... This is pressure. This is pressure right here. <laughs> no doubt. You can phone a friend, whatever th- you need to do. I think you'll have a good shot at this one, yeah. Doc. Uh, <laughs> all right, so you're playing for right. C. England 333. I'm not going to read the whole review, but he but he has a really good, uh, some, a, a good sentence in here. A wise man once said, A society grows great when the men plant trees whose shade they know that they will never sit. Hmm. And so I thought that was, I mean, that's a good one to think on there for yeah, a little yeah. bit. 
But all right, you ready, yeah. Doc? I've got but, the question. But what's the prize going to be? What's what's well, winning? It's well, your uh, mouth yelper from last year. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, well Did you I didn't it use it. Now oh, it's okay. a, we get we got it out of Toxic Closet. Yeah, it's okay. a Quaker Boy. Um, I can't even remember the, what model it is. Is but. that the one you used to defeat the Merlin uh, bird app? Uh, no, this was a brand new one. Okay, brand good. Banking new. Okay, great. I think we can find a gamekeeper duck call around here too to throw in there. I mean, since we're talking about yeah, we'll ducks. do a little call package. Yeah, How little, about that little package. And, yes. and uh, it, look, if you win, re- reach out to us at gamekeepers at mossyoak.com. So yeah, so it's a it's a SR cutthroat is the call. So the question is. It's obvious Santa's reindeer are pretty special and unique, but biologically speaking, with antlers in late de- December, would Santa's reindeer be male or female? Now, you know you're asking a duck biologist <laughs> about, about, about service, right? Yeah, yeah, we are. Well, then well, it's it, Christmas time. So, yeah. <laughs> and it won't be as big of a deal well, if you get so it wrong. I, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go with male. Well, let's think about this now, Doc. So, um, you know, that time of the year that that these uh, these special reindeer or, or that the Santa's reindeer are, are doing their doing deal, their thing. Yeah, That's right. to, you know, December. <clears throat> so around December 25th, do the male reindeer, biologically speaking, do the male reindeer still have their antlers, or uh, is it female reindeer? Let's think about that now and. Mac, I'm looking at Mac, so. Well, I think there was two answers, you know. Was it male or female? Mac, what was the question again? Yeah. All right, I've got myself confused. Yeah, we'll try I mean, that one more time. <laughs> Bobby confused me. <laughs> would would Santa's reindeer be male or female? So it's either male or female is the answer. Well, I'm, couldn't they be both? Deadly, what have we done wrong? Here? I have no well, idea. No, Are no, you asking the better question? Do, How about this? Do do, do female reindeer yet? have antlers? That's what the question fa- is. Yeah, the question is, do female reindeer have antlers? Well, that that is a question, but so I'm just so yeah. Let's do that then. That we ruined. So that. how about I just answer yes? Yeah, I'm gonna just answer yes. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Because then, <laughs> because then it's... <laughs> so the the answer is un, uh, unlike horns, which are never shed, antlers fall off and grow back larger each year. Male reindeer begin to grow antlers in February, and female reindeer begin in May. Both sexes finish growing their antlers at the same time, but shed them at different times each year. Males drop their antlers in November, leaving them without antlers until the following spring, while females keep their antlers through winter until their calves are born in May. And I wonder why they keep their horns? Protection? Well, well, outrip, you know, for protect their calves. Protect their calves. Huh, interesting. Learn something new every day. I, I had no idea. I'll be honest. I had no idea. I, I just—it's not a practice of mine to study up on on reindeer, on sure. caribou. And they don't have reindeer in Calhoun County, no, in the, in or the, on Tibby, in the in the, in the schooner State. schooner bottom. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know so much about uh, a lot of things waterfowl. We're going to give you a break on this one, but we thought it was an interesting question right here. At yeah, Christmas. At the time of year for sure. And confusing question. Yeah, we we confused the fire out of that. So, Doc, we got one more question that we want to ask you. Um, 
So last a couple weeks ago, we get we did a trivia question, and uh, it, it was what is the smallest bird of prey here in the uh, in the United States? The smallest bird of prey. And well, let me just ask you: Do you know that? You, what answer would you give for that one? Hmm. Eastern screech owl. Well, there you go. That's the one that Merlin, we. That, that, that's the one that we we had listed mm. as the as the smallest. And American kestrel would have been the other one. That's the other one I said. So, um, so I got my information. Do you remember a a, a man, a zoologist, uh, m- many years ago named Jim Fowler? Was he on Mutual of Omaha's? Yeah, he was. Right? Yeah, 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 that yeah. was a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, a long time ago. So, but we had a listener write in. Yeah, that, go ahead, Dudley. Yeah. What did he? This yeah. is great. Uh, Kirk Long. We've we've engaged a bit on email and such. He said that there's a bird called a shrike that is much smaller Uh-oh. and and uh i looked it up and and yes that would qualify but uh is that a bird of prey is it's technically question. a songbird according to the you know the text yeah uh yeah so what is the i mean it's not a raptor i know that so uh but it does you know it is a i guess you'd say uh it's an insectivorous carnivorous uh, bird. So I guess it depends on how you're defining raptor. Um, right. And I would probably, you know, the, the, the general, um, I think, understanding is that raptors would be um, your hawks and owls and things of that nature. That's right. We, uh, yeah. well, so did you, you frame know, it up you're, as you're, a bird of prey? Yes, bird yeah, of prey was Gotcha. So uh, yeah, yeah, it was just interesting. I appreciate the guy writing uh, in. Oh yeah, yeah, that's, I didn't, that's good. I didn't even know there was carnivorous birds other than birds of prey. So I learned something for sure. And it looks like they're part of this family, Latin day or something like, which is the Latin word for butcher. Yeah, really? butcher birds. Butcher so birds. they, yeah. uh, you know, they'll they'll capture like a big old grasshopper or a mouse and impale it on a thorn or a a, a barbed wire. Oh, so they use the thorn or the barbed wire to kill it. Yeah, well, wow. and hold it in place, and they may come back a week later after it's dried out some and decomposed. Well, I think it's pretty gnarly. It's, it's easier to <laughs> eat up and hanging dead, man. Yeah. <laughs> so dry hanging a caterpillar. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, but thanks for the comment. What was the guy's name? Uh, Kirk Long. That he, was awesome. He's from Southwest Mississippi. I love learning stuff about yeah. nature. I really do. That's pretty cool. I'm gonna have to keep my eye out for this little shrike. Yeah, that's dude. one of those. That's one of those trivia questions that could be easily debated, you know, based on what what a person is is defining as a bird of prey, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, hum, anyway, that's, yeah, hummingbirds eat insects and things too. They're they prey on it. Well, Doctor Brazier, we appreciate having you on here, and and, and look, we we know we we kind of cut into your afternoon with uh, with some of our technical issues, but thank you so much, and we do appreciate everything that you guys are Absolutely. doing to help protect uh, the, the waterfowl populations. Oh, you bet. You bet. I appreciate the opportunity to join y'all, and thanks for everything that y'all do. Um, happy to help out anytime, uh, anytime you need it. Look, y'all are y'all not, y'all not far up the road. If, if there's uh, if there's anything we can do, uh, you know, we might bring our little podcast set up up there and set yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> let you fix it. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they've got a great podcast, yeah. too. Yeah. Well, we appreciate the, the, the partnership we have with Mossy Oak. It's, uh, it's a great deal. So I, I think it makes sense. We ought to do it more often. Absolutely. Yeah, it does. Okay, well, thank you so much, sir. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you being here, Doc. You bet. Yep. So, you, you too, do buddy. the same. Happy holidays. 
So that's interesting. I, I'm, I'm glad I learned. I learned. It's, it's, it's just a lot going on there. No, it is. Very, very interesting, obviously. And look, you know, my main question was answered. Did it come from a lab in China? And I think that's no. <laughs> we had a bunch of questions <laughs> sitting here, and he, he really answered all of them, even the ones we didn't ask. Boy, I tell you what, you ask him a question, he could go. Hey, yeah. look, he knows his stuff. There's no question about it. So why don't we do this? Let's come back um, to uh, why don't we come back to? I, I wanted like the the uh, it was there's there's a there's a guy I want to give a special shout out to one of our listeners and he's a huge gamekeeper. Uh, he's friends with David Holly. His name is Lot Lewis. He's from Mobile, Alabama, and he's overseas. He's a Black Hawk pilot. And wow, there's been some pictures of him uh, showing up wearing a gamekeeper hat over there. And, and mm-hmm. oh, that's it's cool. Just really cool. That is cool. And just we want to make sure we give a shout out to him. I think he's bought some stuff from the nursery. Yeah, yeah. If we yeah, borrow that Black Hawk, we might run some of these pigs down. That'd be pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah, he's he's been around and uh, doing the gamekeeping thing for a long time. Good guy. So well, we appreciate uh, that service. The service, no question. Yeah, and all the service guys. Absolutely. We we do notice that there's some listens going on over in that part of the world, so we mm-hmm. figure that's who it is. It's just right. doing that. So thank you guys, and thank you for what you do. And as far as blood on the biologic, what have you guys seen lately? Um, I've got one. If I can find where I where I wrote it down, I got one. Yeah, go Master ahead. Guide Mac. He sure did. Yeah, he put our guy Raymond on him here. But this week actually. Yeah. So, that was good. Mac. I mean, it was good it job. was awesome. I mean, not that I did much. I just dropped him off and pointed him in the right direction. Gave well, him a y'all, flashlight, yeah. you know. But, I mean, he made it happen. It was cool. They were chasing pretty good. Yeah, so the rut is on. Made a great shot. I mean, nice whitetail. Nice eight with a kicker on. Uh, Two on kickers. The, on each G2. Yeah, it was good. It was really really good. cool looking deer. Yeah, congrats, Raymond. No doubt about it. Um, and then uh, a young man named Lane Hughes. I was just scrolling through Facebook, yeah. uh, and the uh, Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency posted his photo. He was at a WMA and killed a big old mature 10-point nice. that also had kickers ah. off the tines. Really nice-looking mature deer. And that's, that's a feat that to go feat, in on public, public land and kill a big old mature deer. So Especially with con- congrats, Lane, and, and he had on full mossy oak. Uh, you know it. Well, look, the one thing that jumped out to me this week, Elias Buckner. He, little Elias killed what? him. He listened to our squirrel podcast every and day. He and he went after him. Squirrel, killed his first squirrel. Man, I like that little dude. And, He's and awesome. Yes, there's a picture of him back there. So I Elias think he just walked is, by. He did. You can see the top of <laughs> yeah, his hat. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Elias is Christy Buckner's son. Yes. Patricia Fulgham's grandson. Yep. And uh, he's just – the squirrel's almost as big as he is. No doubt about it. It was really cute. He is, a, he is a good kid, real polite, kid. lots of fun. Well, that's doing Absolutely. it right. That's Go Elias. Squirrels. Yeah. Go Elias. Good Absolutely. job to the parents and grandparents. We might need to apologize to squirrels again because since that podcast dropped, I've heard of a lot of people going squirrel hunting. I, I skipped a, a weekend of deer hunting and went squirrel hunting. <laughs> it's sure fun. Yeah. What is that? That's uh, rabbit. That's you know, rabbits. Richie couldn't get the mics working before yeah. this thing. And now he's uh, <laughs> got a pack he, of he, beagles. Yeah. yeah. Did y'all hear? Look, we're wrapping this thing up. But did y'all hear the, the, the so the battery podcast that dropped last week? Yeah. A little bonus one. Did y'all hear the music at the end of that podcast? I thought it was oh, hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect so, for the holidays. So we're gonna play that again. Uh-huh. And Richie, is there a Davenport involved in that music at all? He's, is this he doesn't have school? a mic in front of him. Niece. A niece. Yeah, so you knew that you knew there had to be a Davenport in there. Somewhere. Nothing like good Christmas music. 
Yeah. So uh, I'm looking down the table. Mike, you got anything to add? It's Christmas right now. There's a lot, Everybody's got a lot to be thankful for. Oh, absolutely. Amen. For sure. And, I mean, a good present is some trees from the nursery. Hey. Yeah, gift cards, too. Gift cards, that's right. Butchery, yeah, we got butchery. Hey, and your your food potter in life, go ahead and get a biologic food pot, you know, gift cards. So yeah, that be uh, ready in in the, when it's time. That butchery too. stuff makes great corporate gifts. You yeah, know, like uh, somebody in a law firm or whatever that buys all the fancy yes. fruits and, and ships better them than fruit their... cake. You can get a elk shank, and and that thing's ready to eat. Yes, too, so it's delicious too. So. Yeah. Now that is good. And so, uh, look, I, I, I want to give a shout out, and I know everybody here does. There's a big weekend coming up. And uh, so, Daniel Hayes yeah, time that night. is getting married. During the rut. Sorry, ladies. He's taken. <laughs> so, that, it, it, uh, that's an exciting thing. It is exciting. We're so, proud for him. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, we want, we want to give a shout out to him. He's probably, he, he probably won't hear this, so no. we, but uh, I'm sure he is getting nervous. Dudley, you're getting a phone call. Looks like your bookie's calling you. Uh, All right. That's Bubba. Place your bets. Yeah. All right. Has anybody got anything else? Uh, Rob, what, you know, I know we need to tell folks that they about the, the – uh, come over here, please, and tell folks about the <laughs> boatload of chips giveaway. There was something you wanted said about oh, that. Oh, man. Yeah. Would you please just go ahead and do that yourself? So we've got Rob Kenny, Kenny who – since he's hit here, since he has been, it's been like he's always been here. I told him this yesterday. He's like, like, how long have you been here? Like 10, 12 years? Yeah. So, uh, what what were you going to say about the the yeah. chips? Yeah. So we're running a boatload of chips giveaway right now mm. with Sea Ark and Uncle Ray's Trips. We've made three three different Mossy Oak exclusive Mossy Oak design flavors. Oh yeah. And there's a giveaway going on right now. We'll put it in the show notes. But it's twenty four thousand dollars worth of prizes. There's a boat. A 15 by 48 sea arc bottomland send picture of boat and motor yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right that's right uh you get a motor you get a trailer uh and you also get a thousand dollars to spend at the mossy oak online on the store and plenty of chips that's right hey, what's and, your favorite oh yeah part? yeah 20 cases of chips provided the dudley well i, we, I think we've eaten most of them. i wish they would go away from here yeah they're really good i, I had to buy new pants recently so what's your favorite one <laughs> I really go back and forth. I used to think it was the all dressed, but I love the the what is it the sweet heat the sweet yeah, the yeah, jalapeno yeah. cheese the bottomland so. barbecue one. It just Blaze. depends on depends on my mood. Yeah, me too. Good chips so. though. Yep, they are nothing yeah. like snacks. But we'll put that in the show notes, and that that goes to the end of February. Awesome, everybody okay. sign up. And guys, look, we really appreciate y'all listening. And if you don't mind, it's real important to us if you go give us a review. And if you would, please share us with your uh, share us with, with your, your buddies, friends. yeah, yeah. game keeping buddies. We sure That's do. Right. So Christmas is approaching. Y'all don't let it sneak up on you. Get your presents. And have you got the wife taken care of, Bob? I do not. No, no you no. better get to work on that. Tick 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 tick. I got a lot. I got a lot to do. Ten days. Well, this has been. I'm not going to say this is. This one's been fun because it it wasn't like a. I mean, it was pretty serious. Very, subject, inter- very interesting to me, honestly. But we need to know about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. no, is we've got to keep ourselves aware of what's going on with our, our wild populations, you know. So, uh, good stuff. Yeah, it sure we is. We appreciate so, what DU does. That is for sure. All right, looking around, Duh, Richie looks like he's Max. Everybody's texting and busy. Everybody, I know everybody wants to go eat lunch, so why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Rob.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.